I appreciate your singing tonight, and we're blessed to have uh, Patrick and Ruth Odell with us this evening. Uh, They were speaking and ministering at the First Baptist Church of Rochester this morning, and it worked out for them to come over to our evening service tonight. We have not had anyone from Baptist Mid-Mission in terms of the administrative office or anything like that in in my time here, Uh, but we do have a number of uh, Baptist Mid-Missionaries as well as um, Bibles International Missionaries, and so uh, I won't name all of them because we're live streaming tonight, but uh, it is a privilege to have you with us. Uh, He served a number of years in pastoral ministry, and then uh, in the middle, in the middle of uh, 2020, uh, transitioned over to the position as president of Baptist Mid-Mission. So he's going to come and uh, share with us this evening, and uh, we're excited to have him with us. And I I will say, we think the volume in the video is going to succeed, uh, but if not, you'll just kind of have to lean in a little bit. But but, uh, if we have technical difficulties, it just reminds us that the devil used to be in the details, now the devil's in the technology. So, um, Patrick, it's good to have you with us, and why don't you come share. Thank you so much, Pastor. Appreciate the opportunity to be with your church family. I said some, some, to someone this morning that, uh, you know, I don't know Michigan well. I live in that other state down to the south. Can I say it in church? Is it okay to say Ohio? No, it's not okay. I'm saying, no, don't say it. Okay. That state with that other team uh, down there. That's kind of the way they are about Michigan, too, you know. So I won't mention where I live in that other state, but... Uh, it's great to get to know folks in Michigan and get to know some of the churches that have stood so faithfully with Baptist Mid-Missions over the years, and that certainly is the case here with your church, the way that you've supported a number of missionaries, your ascending church for one of the missionaries as well, and we're just so grateful for that relationship and grateful for the opportunity to be here with you tonight. I want to begin this evening by showing a video that does, in a, in a very real way, say thank you. Uh, to churches like yours, and also shares with you uh, some of the things that God is doing around the world through your prayers, through your faithful support, and uh, through all that you do for missions. So I trust it'll be an encouragement to you. One of the most prized assurances in all of the Bible is Christ's promise that he will build his church. Missionaries don't build churches, Jesus Christ does. However, the Lord uses human instruments like missionaries, pastors, and faithful church members to accomplish his work. That's why your partnership is so vital to Baptist Mid-Missions. Be assured it is making a difference. Let's take a look at what your partnership did to build Christ's church this past year. In the city of Tatuí, not far from Sao Paulo, Brazil, missionaries Mike and Don Jewell and their Brazilian team members, Hojanelli and Bechi, have been astounded at how God is using their church's construction project to bring people to Christ. The neighborhood is buzzing that a church is going up, and they see the church members' excellent testimony as they build the church block by block. One man wrote on the neighborhood WhatsApp group, 
I'm not a religious person, but these people caught my attention. I want to know more about what they believe. Hojanelli spent four hours one night sharing Christ with another interested neighbor. God is using the Jewel supporters in powerful ways. Mike wrote in a prayer letter, Our church is amazed at God's provision, as we are nearly halfway done with the building, and we owe nothing. Each time we seem to be coming to a crucial stage, God steps in and covers the bill using one of you. Likewise, we can't thank you enough for your sacrificial gifts to the World Relief Fund this past year. They are enabling Baptist Mission's European missionaries as they minister to the shattered lives of Ukrainians, both within Ukraine itself and in Poland through a partnership with a small church unable to care for all of the refugees on their own. Your gifts also brought relief to persecuted believers in Myanmar and to people affected by hurricanes in the Dominican Republic and in Florida. Your gifts also advanced the gospel in a creative access nation where a hardworking missionary couple regularly shares the gospel with the workers building their ministry campus. One of their masons, formerly an atheist, has a new smile on his face as he is now a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Another woman was formerly demon-possessed, but now has come to faith in Christ and loves to praise the Lord. In Germany, missionaries Mark and Leslie Boyd arranged for an evangelistic bus ministry to come to their town of Newmarket. Parked in the downtown area, the bus attracted curious onlookers. The Boyd's church members learned to overcome their fears of witnessing as they engaged visitors in evangelistic conversations. Several teenagers came all three days, and the Boyd's son Joshua had a chance to continue the conversation at his high school. In the Dominican Republic, your support funded the return of Playball Baseball Outreach after a two-year halt due to the pandemic. Some of your own church members may have participated as volunteer coaches. This partnership ministry with Dominican Baptist churches recorded more than 210 professions of faith among boys and their coaches. These churches are the product of BMM's church planting efforts, and they are being strengthened to continue the cycle of missions, reaching more and more people in their own country for Jesus Christ. Across the globe, Jesus Christ is doing exactly what he promised he would do. He is building his church. I hope you can see through this small snapshot of this past year just how important your partnership is, whether it's through prayer, through giving, or through the missionaries and volunteers you send. God is using you to build his church, and we can't wait to see what he will do together with you in the year ahead. One of the most prized assurances. <laughs> so I say thank you. And as God would have it, the, the jewels are with us here tonight. And so uh, until we talked on the phone uh, late this week, I didn't know that they would be here. And they didn't know that they were going to be in the video. So uh, it's great that uh, they were a part of that. And what God is doing there is, is just amazing. We were down there in February with them. Uh, they're visiting a lot of our missionaries, spoke at a conference and things like that. And actually, wasn't on the itinerary, but Mike's like, hey, come see us. Uh, we're not that far from Sao Paulo. And, yeah. And so we did. We went out to see the work, and they showed us the exact spot. The building hadn't even been started yet. It was just a green grass. And they showed, showed us the exact spot where the building would be built. And here we are this many months later. And the building's getting close to being done, right? We're, we're really near. 
Yeah, yeah, God willing, in March. So that's exciting to see what the Lord is doing. And then David King, I don't know if you noticed David's picture in the, the play ball uh, shot there as, as someone that participated in play ball. So it's great to see those different connections here uh, with your church. And it's exciting to see what God is doing. And as I said in the video, through you, through your prayers, through your support, and the Lord's doing some great things around the world to fulfill his promise to build his church. So thanks for being a part of that. Let me just introduce you really quickly to my wife. This is my sweetheart of 37 years. We met 37 years ago in a little Baptist church in southeastern Minnesota. Uh, she didn't like me, but eventually she warmed up. And so we've been uh, married 32 years now. And the Lord's blessed us with four kids, three sons-in-law, uh, a son who's engaged, and then also two grandbabies. So our oldest daughter uh, is there with her husband and the two grandbabies. They serve the Lord in camp ministry in Alaska, on the Kenai Peninsula of Alaska at Higher Ground Baptist Bible Camp. And then our second daughter, she and her husband, that's on the other side. Uh, she and her husband serve in campus ministry, college ministry in the Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul area, the Twin Cities. And then off the other side, behind the grandbabies in the back row, uh, is our third daughter. And she just got married to her high school sweetheart just this last spring. And then our son decided this whole thing about all of his sisters getting married. It's not such a bad idea, so I guess I'll get engaged too. Uh, it was more than that. But uh, he got engaged uh, not that long ago, and he and his fiance, who's not in the picture, are going to be married, Lord willing, in August. And he's a senior at Faith Baptist Bible College in Ankeny, Iowa. So we're thankful for the blessing of family, and especially the blessing of being grandma and grandpa, or as those two cuties call me, Papa. No sweeter word in multiple languages than the word Papa. So I'm very grateful for our grandkids. And they're actually at our, at our house tonight. They're down from uh, Alaska. I say down, they say outside. So when you leave Alaska to go to the lower 48, they don't call that going down, they call that going outside. So they're outside. Seems like a weird way to put it. They're outside and they're in that, that other state where I live. So take your Bible tonight. Let's go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 as uh, we look at a passage of scripture that, that I can connect with because it's a passage of scripture that is very agricultural in nature. Jesus here speaks in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 8, in a couple of different agricultural ways. He speaks in terms of uh, people being like sheep without a shepherd, but he also speaks in terms of souls and the fact that they are a harvest. I mentioned that my wife and I met in Minnesota, but actually I grew up in rural Nebraska. How many of you have ever been to Nebraska? All right, how many of you actually liked it? Okay, a couple of you, all right, that's good, that's good. Nebraska is about as rural as you can get, and once you get past Lincoln, there's nothing, okay, other than corn and beans and cows, and that's about it, corn and beans and cows. And so it's one of those very agricultural states, but that's where I grew up. And so I grew up in a, uh, on, a, on a hobby farm, so to speak, a small acreage on a gravel road, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska. My dad didn't actually farm, but we were surrounded by family farms. In other words, many of my relatives, especially on my mom's side, uh, were farmers. And so I remember when dad brought home this tractor that I'll show to you. It was a 1946 John Deere B. And at least in my dad's family, that was the only right color for a tractor. All those other colors were bad colors. This was the real tractor. And so as a little boy, I remember thinking, uh, I wonder when the day will come when I get to drive the tractor. And not drive it like sit on your dad's lap and drive it, but actually be able to drive the tractor solo. So who would like to guess, or what would you guess in terms of what, what age do you think I was when I got to drive that tractor for the first time, or a tractor just like that? 
10, 12, 8, you're, you're bouncing all around it. It was nine. I was age nine when I got to drive that tractor. And what a day that was. That was a big deal for a nine-year-old boy to finally get to be able to drive the tractor by himself. But you can imagine, I wasn't satisfied with that because what is the pinnacle of machinery on the farm? Do you know what it's called? It's called a combine. Here's an example of a combine. And so I remember thinking, you know, I wonder how old I will have to be when I finally get to drive the most expensive piece of farm equipment on the farm. Anybody want to guess how old I was when that happened? I was 30s. I was in my 30s. <laughs> I wasn't actually able to do that until I was a pastor in northern Iowa, and finally someone was willing to entrust that very expensive piece of farm equipment. Actually, we were at a county fair in Ohio uh, just this last summer, and I, I went over to look to see what the price tag. They actually have a sticker, like a car. They have a sticker price on combines. It was $750,000 without the bean head, the part that you see that's actually bringing the beans into the combine, and without the corn head. By the time you put the corn head and the bean head together, get one of each of those, it would have been a price tag of over a million dollars. Now, they didn't cost that much when I was a kid growing up. But maybe that gives you a little bit of an, an idea of why it was they didn't entrust a 10-year-old. Uh, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that they finally allowed me to do that. And so I, I share all that because of this. Part of why I wanted to, to drive a tractor, part of why I, I wanted to drive a combine was I wanted to get involved on the farm. You know, I had watched all of my mom's relatives especially and watched all these farmers all around, them, around me and I thought, you know what, I'd like to be a part of this. This is kind of exciting. When do I get to be involved? Especially, when do I get to be involved in the harvest? The most important time of the year and the most exciting time of the year on the farm. And so it was that desire to get involved in the harvest that really inspired me to want to drive these pieces of farm equipment. And it's that kind of motif or theme that Jesus uses here in our passage of Scripture to describe what every Christian ought to be doing. Notice the way it says it. Begin reading with me in Matthew 9, verse 35. It says this, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd, then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So what is Jesus teaching, here in us, in the, teaching us here in this text of Scripture? I think it's simply this. It's simply that God wants all of us to get involved in the harvest. To get involved in the worldwide harvest of souls, of bringing people to salvation in and through Jesus Christ. And so tonight I want us to think about some of the, the, the ideas or three different aspects in relationship to that idea of getting involved in the harvest. The first one is the size of the harvest. It's alluded to in verse 36 when the text describes Jesus seeing the multitudes. But then Jesus very specifically states it when he says this. He says the harvest truly is plentiful. And so Jesus speaks in terms of the size of the harvest. Why is it that Jesus makes a point of the size of the harvest? I think there are at least a couple of implications by way of application that we can think of in, in, in terms of as we think about the harvest, as what, you know, what we know about the harvest today, what harvest would have been like for them back in that day. 
And, and then the significance of that in terms of application for us as to why it was that Jesus pointed out the size of the harvest. Implication number one is the size of the harvest speaks to the idea of a spirit of excitement. I mean, again, what you know about farming, what, what do you know in terms of what happens on the farm in the fall? There's no better time of the year because it's the time of the year where they begin to realize the, the results of all of their efforts, all that they've done all year long in terms of their growing season. And so there's no better time, there's more, no more exciting time in terms of the, the fruit of their labors. And the same should be true when it comes to us as Christians in relationship to souls. In relationship to having the joy of leading somebody to Christ, there ought to be a spirit of excitement. A word that I would associate with this would be the word opportunity. Because if you think about it this way, we have a great opportunity. If you get involved in harvest ministry, there will never be a lack of work because there will never be a lack of souls. The sheer size of the harvest ought to excite us that there are lost people all over that need the gospel, that need Jesus Christ. And so I think an implication is a a spirit of excitement. Another implication is a sense of urgency. The bigger the harvest, the more work, yes, but the more sense of urgency there is because of the limited amount of time to complete the harvest. And the more there is in terms of the size of the crop, the more work there is to be done in a limited amount of time. Again, we saw that firsthand. I pastored in in northern Iowa, and we saw that firsthand, especially the years where there was a bumper crop, where literally they couldn't fit it all in the bins, and they're literally making these ginormous piles that are acres in size and and are 30 stories high, and and they're trying to figure out what to do with all, all of this grain that is abundant in nature, and these farmers are working so many hours. I get a kick out of people that refer to farmers as, oh yeah, they work from sunrise to sunset. Well, during the harvest, they work way before sunrise and way after sunset. I actually remember hearing a, a news story of a, of a farmer in the fall who was doing his fall tillage, and he fell asleep in his four-wheel drive tractor. This was out in Iowa. Okay, he fell asleep. And imagine, this is a 400-horsepower tractor, okay, with great big duels and great big monstrous tractor, and he falls asleep at the wheel, and guess what the tractor kept doing? It just kept going. If you know anything about Iowa, there aren't a lot of trees. And so literally, it kept going. This guy's asleep at the wheel. It kept going, mowing down fence row after fence row after fence row until finally, miles away from his own field, it, he finally, the tractor finally ran up against a great big old oak tree and it spun its tires down to the point where it was buried up to his axles and finally stalled out the motor because this guy was so exhausted because of all the hours that he'd worked. It's that kind of mindset. My wife actually was telling me that she saw on social media last night about a six-year-old boy driving tractors out there. And we're not talking about little John Deere tractors like I drove, okay? But great big tractors and, and being a part of the harvest. Why is that the case? Because they've got a job to do and something's coming, right? When is harvest? It's in the fall, right? What comes next? We got a piece of that this week, did we not? Or a glimpse of that this week? It's called... Winter! And you don't want to be harvesting in the winter. And so there's a sense of urgency. I saw that firsthand with one of my farm families. Um, the, the Keller family. You know, when I, when I was growing up in Nebraska, farming was important, but it was kind of a family social type of thing. I can remember, you know, helping out, and, and my aunts would bring, like, coffee and donuts or coffee and cookies out to the field at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then lunch would come along, and they'd bring lunch out, and we'd stop everything we did, and we'd sit around and 
you know, drink coffee and, and, and enjoy the, the stuff that was brought out to us. And then about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that happened again. And, and it was just kind of this nice, easy pace type of thing. That was not the case with this family that I had in, in, in my church in northern Iowa. They farmed 3,000 acres. And so for them to get the job done before winter meant they didn't mess around. As a matter of fact, when they would go into a field, actually they would come into the field with two combines, and they would open up the field with, with the two combines. As soon as they did that, those combines wouldn't, wouldn't stop. I mean, they had to turn around, turn around at the end of the rows, but they would not stop. They would go, 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 go until that field was completely done or the day was completely over. And so I remember watching them and this like well-oiled machine of efficiency. Uh, you see here a picture that depicts what they would do. It's called catching on the run. What that means is rather than drive that combine over to the edge of the field and unload it into a semi or into a wagon, that combine wouldn't stop. It would unload its hopper full of grain into this grain cart, they referred to it as, as it pulled up alongside it. So you can imagine them synchronizing their speed. So they're going the same speed and he's unloading while he continues to combine. And that same grain cart then would go across the field where the other combine was functioning, do the exact same thing there. And then he would go to the end of the field where there's two or three semi trucks and unload into those semi trucks that are running back to the farm, unloading all the grain into the grain bins. And there's this constant motion of efficiency going on because they had 3,000 acres to combine. They had to get the job done. And I think of that, and I, I can't help but think of what Jesus is saying here about the harvest. When he says, the harvest is plentiful. There ought to be a sense of urgency when it comes to reaching souls for Christ. Because guess what? Winter is coming. I mean, think about that. Even in, in, in America today, are things getting better? Or are things getting worse in the United States of America? Winter, winter is coming. And so if there's ever been a time where we ought to have a sense of urgency to reach souls for Christ, it's now. And yet, do we see that in our churches? I'll be, I'll be frank, I don't see a lot of that in the Church of America, Church of, of, here in the United States. You realize that 80% of churches in America are either plateaued or in decline? And of those churches in America that are growing, only 1% are growing because of evangelistic growth to me that that proves the point of a lack of urgency a lack of a sense of urgency to reach souls for christ and so jesus here is pointing this out to us tonight and pointing this out this out to us in this text because he wants us to have an urgency an urgency that is that is fueled by compassion for souls i think that's the key to understanding this because if you back up in our text it was it was a compassion that drove jesus you know, I, I went past it and didn't really comment on it too much, but verse 36 says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. And so it's urgency fueled by compassion for souls. And you understand that compassion for the multitudes must become compassion for the individual. In other words, it's not enough to say, you know what, I have, my, my heart is stirred for the needs in whatever country across the world. The reality of the matter is, is God wants our hearts to be stirred for the needs of our neighbors. Their, their need for Jesus, or our coworkers, or our family members that have never heard the gospel, or at least have not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God wants us, in light of the size of the harvest, to have both a spirit of excitement and a sense of urgency. How much of those two things do you have when you think about the needs of people who don't know Christ? The size of the harvest. 
Secondly, then, also notice with me the shortage of the workers. You're familiar with the text. The text goes on to say this. It says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? They're few. The laborers are few. There weren't enough workers in Jesus' day. And the need is even greater today. And let me just say, this is not exclusively a missions text. Okay? We've had a tendency, I'm guessing, that probably most of us, if you've ever heard a message preached from this text, it's always been a missions message. But the reality of the matter is, is Jesus is speaking here to disciples. If you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, what should you then also be? You ought to be a harvest worker, right? You ought to be someone who's sharing the gospel of Christ. And so this is not exclusively for someone who follows the Lord's call to Brazil or someone else who follows the Lord's call to some other place. Yes, by way of application, it fits that. But the reality is this, that every Christian ought to be a harvest laborer. Every Christian ought to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and bringing people to faith in Christ. Now, the severity of the need and the critical nature of the need, I think, is punctuated by what is going on in missions ministry. I think it's punctuated even by what's going on in terms of, of pastoral ministry. There's a real shortage of pastors for churches like this church. And so those needs punctuate the need, but the reality is this, is that, is that the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. We see that firsthand when it comes to missions. Uh, almost every mission agency leader that I know says something very similar to what I'm about to say. And it's simply this, that there are more missionaries today retiring from the field than there are new missionaries going out into the field. That's That's fairly universal across the circles of churches like this church. One, maybe broader in his scope, evangelical mission leader put it this way in relationship to, to their mission agency. He said, they are faced with the reality of a 5% decline in their missionary numbers per year for the foreseeable future. Can you imagine that? 5% per year decline as far as they can see. And so the need is urgent, but it it was a need that Jesus pointed out to us in in this time and this day and and, and, in the age in which Jesus is, is sharing these truths. But as I think about that in relationship to us, I can't help but ask myself questions like this. So if the need was so great and there were so many, so many who went into the ministry in the past, specifically missions, what is, the, what is wrong? Is it that God is calling fewer people? Is it that God all of a sudden no longer is concerned for the needs of souls? Or the needs of the world? I don't think that's the answer, is it? It has to be not God's fault, in other words. The reality of the matter is, is I think God is still in the process of calling people to fulfill the Great Commission that you heard read to us this, morning, or this evening from Luke chapter 24. And yet, fewer people are willing. Fewer people are listening to the call and and heeding that call. So let me ask a couple of questions that are application questions in relationship to that tonight. As we think about the shortage of of workers, where are the needs the greatest? But then before that, why is the need even greater today? And I've alluded to this. Number one, is it not a matter of surrender? Is it not a matter of people saying, I'm willing? You think about it, Romans 12, 1 is still in the Bible, right? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your what? Reasonable service. 
So every Christian is called to the surrendered light. Now, does that mean that every Christian will be a missionary? No. But every Christian is called to say to God, God, I will go and I will do and I will be whatever you want me to go and do and be. God wants us to live surrendered lives. And so I can't help but think that part of it is that. I also can't help but think that part of it is wrong parental goals. And this isn't original with me. Woodrow Kroll wrote a book years ago. And it was entitled The Vanishing Ministry in the 21st Century. And it was actually kind of prophetic because it's coming true in terms of what we're seeing in both missions and pastoral ministry and other facets of ministry today. And he made this point. He said this. He said, we give our children to the Lord at baby dedication and then we take them back at graduation. And what he cites in that book is the average conversation between especially dads and their high school junior or seniors. They're thinking about the future. And that the average conversation goes something like this. You need to go to college so that you can make money. And the main focus is on money. And maybe it's something a little different. Maybe it's learn a trade or do this or whatever. But the, but the bottom line ends up being so that you can make money. Instead of helping the young person sort out what does God want you to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with making money, okay? But if your sole motivation in life is to make lots of money and you're unwilling to do whatever God may want you to do, if it doesn't include making lots of money, then there's something wrong. It's interesting what Woodrow Kroll went on to say in that book in relationship to that. He said the following, quote, Many parents perceive that if they commit their children to God, he will cruelly force them to live in poverty and deprivation all of their lives in some far-off, bug-infested jungle. Or worse... They won't experience the glamour of being sent to the mission field, but will experience the horror of being tucked away as a pastor and wife in a little church in a no-name town, best described as 10 miles south of resume speed. Now, I pastored in rural Iowa. That was the kind of town that I pastored in. And yet I'm so thankful today that the Lord allowed me to serve in that type of a community and take the gospel of Christ to that type of community. And yet for some parents, the very thought of giving their children to missions or giving their children to ministry is horrible to them because they have a plan that is altogether different than the plan of God for their kids. Parents, what kind of conversations do you have with your kids about the future and the joy of serving the Lord and even the possibility that God may want them to serve in ministry? The third one is the seduction, and it fits with the previous one, the seduction of materialism. Think about it this way. Would you sell everything you own, pack what's left in a few suitcases, and follow God's will across the planet? Or is the very idea of having to give up everything you own such that you could never see yourself doing that? We have developed such a taste for material things, I'm afraid, that the idea of sacrifice and self-denial is borderline repugnant to the average American Christian. And so materialism is perhaps one of the biggest hurdles to Christians saying, I'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll give it up, I'll follow God's plan for my life. And so if the need is, is greater today because of these and probably other things that could be on the list, where then, where is, where's the gospel needed the most? So second application question is this. Where is where's the need the greatest? Now, if you were to talk to any missionary, they would say where I serve. So 
you folks would recruit everybody in this room, right, to go with you to Brazil. And uh, the need is obviously great in Brazil. And, and every missionary would point to their field because that's the burden on their heart. But let me share with you a couple of different areas that are, are specific in terms of even our emphasis uh, with Baptist Missions. Number one is the metropolitan areas of the world or the, the mega cities, if you can think of them that way, these huge metro areas. Uh, do you realize that the top five metro areas in the world, none of which are in the United States, okay? So New York City doesn't make the list. LA doesn't make the list. Chicago doesn't make the list. Houston doesn't make the list. The top five metropolitan areas average in size 27 million people. Now, for you fact checkers out there, okay, it's not the city proper. It's, it's the sprawl, all right? It's the entire metro. Like, we were in Sao Paulo, and we just kept driving and driving and driving. We, we had left the city proper of Sao Paulo and just kept going because of the sprawl of, of the city. That's what we're talking about. We were also there when we were there. Uh, the missionary guest or a host that, that, that met us at the airport took us to a restaurant and, and they showed us this restaurant because it was at the, near the top of a, of, a, of a taller building and they wanted us to see the city. And, and immediately I, you look out across Sao Paulo and you, you just see this massive humanity. And one of the things that struck me was how many high-rise apartment buildings there were. I mean, they're just, as far as the eye could see, all these high-rise apartment building after apartment building after apartment building. It's no wonder they can cram millions and millions of people in a city. And so I asked our, our missionary host, I said, so how many people live in one of those buildings? 5,000 people in just one building. And they're all over the city. I mean, all over the city. And, and, and one of the things that popped into my mind was that that sounds like a church planting uh, model, right? You just reach like one or two or three of those, those buildings for Christ, and you've got an entire little mini mission field right there that could be reached for Christ. And so the mega cities of the world need the gospel. And literally what's happening all over the world today is people are leaving the rural areas for jobs, and they're flocking to the cities, and the need is great to reach the mega cities of the world with the gospel of Christ. The second area where there's great opportunity is in creative access nations. We used to call these restricted access nations because of the nature of how difficult it is to get there. You can't typically go there with a religious worker's visa, a missionary visa. There has to be another reason for you to be able to get into these countries that are typically predominantly Muslim or Hindu or communist in nature. And so it's exciting to see the opportunities, though, in places like that. Uh, places where God is opening the doors through, through business, uh, through teaching English, through medicine, and through vocations where someone can work for an American company via their computer and be a part of a missions church planting teams anywhere on the, on the planet. Anywhere on the planet. And so God is opening some really cool doors. One of those is an island off the coast of Africa. Imagine this. Imagine living on, a, on an island that is 99.9% Muslim. 99.9%. There's no way you're getting there with a religious worker's visa. And so one of our missionaries is there because he was able to get a work visa because he opened a business. He opened, of all things, a fitness center because that was the way to get in, and Muslims work out too. And so that became the avenue for, for reaching people for Christ. They also utilized hospitality. They would invite their customers. Would you like to come over to our home for dinner? We'd love to serve you an American meal. Have you ever eaten American food? Yeah, McDonald's. <laughs> Not real American food. And so they would, they would use hospitality. And of all things, they would have people say to them, 
in hushed tones, Muslims. And we hear you'll tell us about Jesus. We don't know anything about Jesus. Would you tell us about him? One of the Muslim imams, which would be somewhat similar to a pastor, actually asked this missionary if he could have a Bible study with him because he wanted to learn about Christianity. So it's places like that and creative things like that that God is still opening the doors. That's part of why we started, we quit calling these restricted access. It started calling them creative access because there are places like that where, where business or, or medicine or teaching English, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading, where people like you could be used of God to serve in missions. And so the size of the harvest, the shortage of workers, and then notice finally the solution of prayer. Verse 38 puts it this way. It says, therefore, in light of all that Jesus has said, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's interesting how Jesus tells us to pray here. The word that he uses is, is, is one of four Greek words that are used primarily in the New Testament for pray or prayer or praying. And the word that Jesus elects to use here is the word deamai. It's an interesting word because it emphasizes great need. It, it, it emphasizes wanting something desperately because of an urgent need that you plead with someone to provide it. So that's what prayer is. Prayer is wanting something desperately because of an urgent need. So you, you, you plead with, or you, maybe a better word would be you beg someone to provide it. And this is illustrated in a couple of other texts where a lot of the modern translations don't use the word plead or don't use the word pray. They actually, a lot of the modern translations use the word beg to describe what happens in a couple of, of other texts. Let me just give you those examples. We won't turn there tonight. But in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, you have the account of a leper encountering Jesus. And, and imagine if you had leprosy and you met Jesus. What would you do? Right? What would you do? You would beg Jesus to heal you of your leprosy. And that's exactly what happens there in that account in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. Luke 9, 38, we have the example of the father of a demon-possessed boy. Again, put yourself in his shoes. <clears throat> imagine, being, imagine being the daddy of a boy who foams at the mouth, who harms himself as a result of a demon that is controlling his body, and you meet Jesus. What would you do? You would beg Jesus to heal your boy. And that's exactly what happens there in Luke chapter 9 and verse 38. And so that, it's that term that Jesus uses here in relationship to pray, prayer when he says to us, pray the Lord of the harvest. And he commands us to do so. You pray to or you beg the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers into his harvest field. So I would ask you tonight, are you, are you praying like that? When is the last time you begged God to send more harvest laborers? Send more harvest laborers in terms of people reaching people for Christ right here in your community, but also send more harvest labor, laborers in terms of people reaching more people for Jesus Christ around the world. Jesus commands us to pray. And so he, he tells us how, but, but part of what also goes through my mind in relationship to this commandment is why is it then that Jesus did that? Why did he not just tell them to go? We understand the Great Commission says that. Why did he tell them to pray for more harvest laborers instead of telling them to pray for more souls to be saved? And we know there's an example of that in the New Testament as well. Well, I think there are a number of, of answers to that. And, and one is, like Ian Bounds put it, when he said that, well, prayer can do anything that God can do. 
And so if there's a need for more harvest laborers, what should the instinctive response be? Pray about it, right? We had to pray. So prayer can do anything that God can do. But prayer also often makes the one who is praying the answer to their own prayers. Right? It makes the one who's praying the answer to their own prayers. Or as Warren Wiersbe put it, when we pray as he commanded, we will see what he saw. We will feel what he felt. We will do what he did. And so the best thing that we can do to become part of the harvest of souls is to begin praying and asking God to send forth laborers. And then as we are begging God to send more laborers, ask ourselves the question, am I an answer? Am I the answer to my own prayers? It's part of what God did in my heart to call me from pastoral ministry to serve Baptist mid-missions. I just assumed I kind of had a 20-year plan, as a matter of fact. For serving the Lord, the rest of my ministry at the church I was at that just I loved and was so grateful for, and God was doing great things there. And yet, having prayed this prayer regularly for decades, realized that God was saying to me through his word and his call in my life, you got to be willing. You're asking God, you're asking me. And yet, are you willing? And perhaps that is what God might do in your heart if you begin to pray for more harvest laborers. My, my fear, though, is this, that a lot of churches aren't doing this with any regularity. I, I didn't look, Pastor, to see if you have a prayer bulletin, but if you looked at the average church's prayer bulletin, you know what the primary focus would be? And it's not a bad thing. The primary focus in the average Baptist church prayer bulletin is what? It's physical needs, right? And that's okay. That's good. It's good for us to pray for physical needs. And yet, where is the emphasis on praying the Lord of the harvest? My, my fear is this. My fear is that Christians pray more about getting saints out of the hospital than sinners out of hell. And they pray the Lord of the hospital more than the Lord of the harvest. And so God wants this to become your personal prayer priority, and he wants it to become this church's personal prayer priority, to ask God, to beg God to send more from Maranatha Baptist Church into the world to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, who's the next missionary from your church? Do you think that way? Who's the next up? Who's the next one in? Who's the next one that God would call from Maranatha Baptist Church? In light of that tonight, let me just end with four different things I, would, I think that, that God wants us to do in relationship to what his word says this evening. Number one, all of us should ask God to give us a spirit of excitement and a sense of urgency Fueled by a compassion for souls. Are you asking God for that? Do you have that? Number two, surrender your life to God's will every day. Say, God, I'm willing. I'm, I'm, I'm yours. Surrender your life to his will. Number three, encourage your kids and your grandkids. Encourage them towards ministry to consider God's call potentially in their lives. And then finally, make praying for harvest workers a daily habit. Make praying for harvest laborers a daily habit. One of the things that we have initiated at Baptist Mid-Missions is what we refer to as Pray 938. It's taken from Matthew 938. So anything you see that says 938 on it, you know that it's right out of that text of Scripture that we've studied together tonight. And my burden is this. My, my first goal, I guess you could call it, as a part of our Advance the Vision ministry and, and five things we think the Lord wants to do through BMM for the, for the next 20 years. The first one is to enlist 20,000 people who will pray daily for more harvest laborers. And, and by that I mean people that would be willing to commit 
I could pray every day for more missionaries. After all, if you're a Christian, who can't pray, right? Who can't pray for more harvest laborers? And so Pray 938 is all about that. There's a, a slide that will come up here that it kind of gives you an idea of what the little brochure is that's back there on the table. The sign-up sheet. What I'm inviting people to do is become one of my prayer partners, one of the 20,000 that will make the commitment to pray at least once a day for more missionaries. I'll, I'll tell you what I do. My, my cell phone uh, alarm is set for 9.38, okay? Matthew 9.38. So every morning, unless I've turned it off because I'm teaching a Sunday school class <laughs> or something like that, 9.38 in the morning, my cell phone alarm goes off. I stop what I'm doing if I can, and I pray for more missionaries at 9.38. And then guess what? 9.38 at night, Cell phone alarm is set for 9.30 at night. We, we may be watching television and we stop what we're doing or I may be out in the garage. Stop what I'm doing. Pray for more missionaries. And I would invite you, you don't have to do the cell phone thing, but I would invite you to, to become one of our prayer partners because my burden is this, that God would use just a whole host of Christians across America that start begging God for more missionaries and that God would raise up a whole new generation. A whole new generation. I don't know if you know this or not, but between 1945 and 1955, with Baptist missions, almost a thousand missionaries left churches in North America for the fields of the world. Wouldn't it be awesome if God did the same thing in the next decade? If God did the same thing of in your church and other churches like this? I can't help but think if He does that, it'll be the fruit of prayer. Of prayer. So I would invite you to join me and uh, sign up there. And then this, there's a booklet that looks just like the slide behind me. That booklet is a 30-day guide of how to pray for more missionaries. And so if you sign up to become one of our prayer partners, take that with you. It, it walks through a lot of different ways to creatively pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth more laborers into his harvest field. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity to study it together tonight. I pray that you might use it to stir all of our hearts for our own mission field right around us here, those that need Christ, as well as the mission fields of the world. And I pray, Lord, that if it's your will, you might call someone from this church to be sent by this church to fulfill the need that I've represented and expressed.